I first started following running as a fan when I was running in university. By then, I had done two or three marathons, and when I joined the Concordia cross-country team, it was the first time I trained with a team since my high school track years. I ended up taking 35 minutes off my personal best for the marathon after about six months of 5K training. A few years later, I followed the U.S. marathon women heading to the 2012 Olympics, and I was blown away by how fast they ran for the distance. With time, I became aware of the East African dominance over the marathon distance. And before I finished university, one of my teammates at the time had decided to go spend one month living and training in Kenya. I thought this was amazing. At the time, I remember thinking that if I had a dream vacation or trip, that's what it would be, second only to being able to run for a living. Our guest today got to live out this dream for 15 months in Ethiopia, and he tells us all about the experience and what he learned from the greatest runners in the world in his new book. So hi, and welcome to the Running Book Reviews podcast, where we review running books to help keep you motivated about your running or maybe inspire you to try something new. We also hope that listening to us chat about running will encourage you to read the book for yourself. My name is Liz, and with my co-host, Alan, we're going to talk with author Michael Crawley about his new book, Out of Thin Air. Out of Thin Air is the story of the author's time living and training with some of the best runners in the world in Ethiopia. The book's divided into 14 chapters, and each chapter describes kind of a facet of training life in Ethiopia and some of the reasons and the beliefs associated with it. There are lots of little stories about Michael's experience, like when he was woken up at 3 a.m. for the first time to join the others for a night run. Because he spent more than a year, I think it was 15 months altogether, training with the group, he got a real chance to develop friendships and integrate into the running scene, but always ended up struggling to compete on the training runs, many of which were done at altitude with some blazing fast runners. So let me tell you a little bit about Michael Crawley. He's a 220 marathon runner who's competed internationally for Scotland and Great Britain. He's currently assistant professor in social anthropology at Durham University in the UK. Out of Thin Air is his first book. The writing was supported by a postdoctoral fellowship from the Economic and Social Research Council. Uh, And I think an illustration of the sort of love and affection that Michael has developed for Ethiopian running would be that it's revealed in his book that his daughter Madeline, her middle name is Tiranesh, which I assume is after Ethiopia's gold medal prodigy, Tiranesh Dibaba. Welcome, Michael. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Tiranesh means a uh, good girl in Amharic. Ah, okay. Or she is good. Okay, so it's not it's not necessarily after Tiranesh Dibaba. Well, yeah, it is. Yeah, I suppose it's a bit. Yeah. It is. Yeah. That's good to know what it means. Obvious first question is, um, what prompted you to want to go to Ethiopia in particular, and why did you decide to write the book? Um, well, I think I've always been um, interested in running culture sort of more broadly. So uh, that began uh, growing up in the Northeast and being interested in um, Gateshead Harriers, which is, I think is where, where you're from, um, kind of trying to explain why there were so many top athletes from a very small part of the UK at that time, what kind of culture of running there was around around there that um, that made them so good. And then I decided to focus on Ethiopia in the East African context, just because it's far less, um, it's known about Ethiopia basically than other countries, especially Kenya, because of the kind of colonial context with Kenya, the fact that a lot of the runners can speak relatively good English, that tends to be where people go um, when they want to talk about East African running. Uh, and I felt like people would often sort of describe running from the from the region as East African running, even though there's this whole host of different kind of cultures within East Africa and even within Ethiopia. You know, Ethiopia's actually got over 80 different languages. It's got a lot of different ethnic groups, lots of different um, kind of cultures, even within that one country. So uh, it just seemed like a particularly um, interesting place to go. Did you have to acquire language skills? Yeah, my so I kind of speak some Amharic, which is the sort of the main uh, language, I suppose, that's used officially. I speak a sort of running specific version of Amharic where I'm very good at discussing training times and uh, training runs and that kind of thing and not so good at um, talking about other stuff really. But uh, my Amharic's good, my running Amharic's good enough to get by. 
And how did you choose um, like the particular group that you ended up joining or was that sort of like you ended up just turning up in Addis Ababa and then just kind of figuring it out from there? Was it planned? Um, so to begin with, I did what um, a lot of anthropologists do in this sort of situation, which is to put themselves in a position of kind of the apprentice to go to people and, and ask them to, and sort of try to learn their craft from them. Um, and that can be a particularly good way of trying to um, understand the logic of an activity, I suppose. So I, I started by just sort of wandering up into the forest above where I lived. And uh, the beauty of, of that particular bit of forest is that you can, you know, if you walk up there at six o'clock in the morning, there's always somebody out for a run or some groups of people out for a run and people would just sort of grab me and I'd be sort of swept up in in the in the running um more or less straight away and I did that because I, I kind of wanted to get a sense of what running looked like at all different levels of the sport so to begin with those runners who I was running with at the start of field work were kind of were usually runners who didn't weren't necessarily attached to a club um yet in Ethiopia they were kind of hopeful sort of up-and-coming um athletes I suppose so that allowed me to get a sense of what their lives were like but then I also wanted to to look at, at people who were able to run abroad and compete internationally and who were traveling to races in China and places like that so I went and and did like a lot of training with some athletes from a sports management agency called Moyo Sports and luckily I already knew the the manager of that uh, team Malcolm Anderson because he was in um, he's based in Edinburgh um, where I was living so I, I already knew him pretty well and he was able to introduce me to them and to you know ask the coach to to let me go along to training with them and it was through that kind of relationship really that I was able to get such good access to the runners and, and to be able to be embedded in that team for such a long time. Just a pause probably for our listeners we should I should ask you the question what's an anthropologist and what does an anthropologist do? Yes yeah, so, so social anthropologists are basically interested in in culture and, and sociality so how people relate to each other uh, and, the, and the main research method that anthropologists use is ethnography which means literally writing culture so we're interested in in basically yeah trying to trying to do long-term field, field work which involves basically developing a committed relationship to a place and to a, a group of people and then being able to write about it sort of as far as possible from that point from the point of view of those of that group of people so that's kind of what I was trying to do in Ethiopia and it what it meant was using a, a method that's normally called um, participant observation where you just spend a lot of time observing what's happening uh, but which is also called observant participation so you to kind of emphasize the fact that with the study of something like running you're you are really participating in the activity and that's the that's kind of the main research method so it was very important for me as an anthropologist to make sure that I was doing as much of the training as I could with people um, and trying to live the kind of the rest of the lifestyle as well you know eating the sim similar foods um, resting when they rested being around the compound with them sort of being involved in in the kind of whole life of, of a runner in Ethiopia I suppose. Um, so I, I was just wondering like did you find it hard to both be a researcher and a participant because I remember um, when my previous coach, he used to he used to run the workouts with us when we were kind of relatively small. And his uh, rationale was because he wanted to see how it felt uh, to run those workouts and to have to recover from them. So it, it gave him perspective when he was planning workouts, like, is it too hard or is it reasonable or that kind of thing. And then eventually he said, like, it was too hard to do both. It was too hard to be a coach and be an athlete at the same time. And um, so I was wondering, like, did you find the same? Was it difficult to be the researcher and part of the group? Uh, it was, and that, that's um, for a number of reasons. Like, firstly, it was very difficult for me to keep up with the athletes, but with the majority of the athletes that I was training with, because the group at that time kind of ranged from sort of 207 marathon runners up to about 214, maybe something like that. So I was considerably slower and also less um, acclimatized to the altitude. So uh, in order to, to really be a part of the group, I was sort of overtraining quite a lot a lot of the time trying to keep up and and then luckily the way that the training sessions were run was normally there would be the team bus going along with us so I could do the first half of a run or the first two-thirds of a run and then just jump in the bus and it was okay but uh yeah it's hard to both uh, participate well and observe well but it seemed to me that it was very important for my relationship with the runners that I was seen to be turning up to all the sessions and at least kind of trying hard and suffering alongside them um, and they kind of respected that but it helped there was one one period where a time where I was uh, injured so 
um, I couldn't run. So I was on the bus for sort of three weeks observing from the bus, which was actually really useful to have that period of time where I was a little bit more detached and I was able to spend a lot of time talking to the coach about um, his role and, and that kind of side of things as well. So I did, I kind of did a bit of both, I guess. So this book, uh, um, Out of Thin Air, it's actually uh, a postdoctoral research publication. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It's um. So I wrote. I, I basically wrote my PhD thesis uh, first when I got back from Ethiopia, and then I wrote the book afterwards. So the book is kind of a um. Yeah, sort of rewriting of the PhD, but without the kind of more theoretical anthropology. You realise no one's going to buy it now. Of course, I've just said that. Everyone's going to go. Oh God, I'm not going to buy that. Um, guys, <laughs> the book is fantastically readable, and uh, we'll mm. give you we'll give you our views on it at the end. But it's a brilliant little set of stories and insights into culture there from a joining with the ethiopians in on their runs point of view you said you you, you sort of rocked up at 6 a.m on the hills in the forest and people just sort of say hey you get on the get on the group get on the line and off you go is it really that easy is there something in the water there or in their culture that they go oh there's somebody on their own let's get them in yeah i mean it's um yeah, running is seen as a social activity, really, in Ethiopia, especially running that that is for the purpose of, of improving yourself and becoming a better runner is seen as something that has to be done with other people. So people would say running alone is just for health. It's just, you know, what people do to to stay healthy and, you know, keep their weight down and things like that. But if you want to be changed, as people put it, if you want to transform yourself and become an elite athlete, you have to run with other people all the time. So it was seen as, you know, on the days when I did just feel like going out for a run on my own, that was seen as really quite deeply antisocial behaviour <laughs> in Ethiopia. It's very different sort of culture to here. Um, and that's true of, of other things in Ethiopia as well. Eating alone is really kind of frowned upon as well. So it's a broader part of the culture to, to sort of value um, communal activity. But with running especially, it's seen as something that you need to do with others if you want to get better. So if you would say the... Uh... The, the running running here is almost viewed as a as a solo type sport or activity would you say that you know running in in Ethiopia is viewed as a very much a group activity yeah I think so yeah um so they a lot of the younger runners before they sort of come to Addis Ababa they're living in uh training camps that are funded by sort of regional water companies or something like that you know lots of uh, government-backed companies agencies have running clubs attached to them where they pay people a small salary to to be athletes basically and those and I, I went to stay in a couple of these training camps and basically everyone lives in more or less kind of barracks style accommodation where they're sharing rooms with maybe six people in a room and then they're doing all of their training sessions together so it's just it becomes part of the way that the sport is is run basically and then when people move to Addis Ababa and they start to to think about going abroad to run that kind of communal approach to training just is still very important to people. So maybe uh, it would be a good time because you you kind of like there are certain things you sort of demystified. Um, one of them is because, you know, here we all kind of have this romanticized version of the, you know, the Kenyans and the Ethiopians just, you know, coming from a very poor background and running to school barefoot and then they end up being great runners. And for sure, I guess there are stories like that, but but it's not that's not the bulk of the runners. So I guess maybe maybe you can explain a little bit about the trajectory that they that they have like to to get to these sort of running teams. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think most Ethiopian young people who grew up in rural parts of Ethiopia have they do. Uh, the runners would talk about being strong as a result of their upbringing because they've been working on the farm um, whether that's kind of herding animals during the day or plowing helping with plowing and things like that so they they do talk about that rural upbringing being important for for making them strong as as athletes but I think to to just focus on those kind of deterministic factors like the fact that people are poor or the fact that people uh, or to look for kind of genetic explanations for East African running success kind of downplays the the hard work that goes into it and the kind of uh, and also the institutional support that that Ethiopian runners especially have so like in um as i said there's a lot of uh training centers that are set up by the government or funded by uh banks or um the prison service and things like that and so there are a huge number of runners who are just paid 
a salary just to focus on their running. Um, and so they are effectively full-time athletes. And that would be, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people in Ethiopia. And that's something that I think most most people just don't realize that that's the case. And if we compare that with with the UK, where we have like lottery funding for, for runners, I wouldn't think there's more than, I don't know, 10 or 15 distance runners who are paid a decent amount of money to to just run in the UK so that is a huge difference and that's nothing to do with um, running to school barefoot that's all to do with this kind of institutional support I think. I guess in America the teams have support from shoe companies so they have shoe deals or they have a team which is sponsored by a sports company yeah and that's the way that they group there. Yeah and a lot of the top British runners end up in the States for that reason, I guess, to, to join one of those groups. So kind of similar um, reasoning, yeah. In the training with, with um, the Ethiopians, you refer or they refer to something about their condition or being in their condition, mm. which when I was reading the book, I thought, yeah, okay, well, it's their level of fitness. But then as you read through it, it's kind of more than that. Can you describe us to us a bit about um, the Ethiopians' view of being in condition? Yeah, sure. So that like so people use the word condition in English, even when they were speaking in Amharic, they would say they would just throw the word condition in. And as you say that if you just sort of the direct translation to English, you just assume that that means, you know, condition of fitness or fitness level or something like that. Whereas uh, in actual fact, I, I felt like it's also it's kind of connected to the way that people talked about air conditions. So like the different altitudes around the city. And it was just it, it, it kind of described a far more holistic idea than than what we would think about if we were just thinking about purely the the kind of the physical condition or level of fitness within an individual person so it, it describes kind of people's access to different environments around the city that they were able to train in all kinds of things about what people were able to eat and how much rest they were able to get and things like that so it was it was just a term that that seemed to have this kind of broader resonance than just than than just the simple english translation i suppose so you um you actually get to run a cross country race while you're in ethiopia which uh, which <laughs> yeah. is really exciting and it just goes to show the depth of talent that's over there how was that? Because you ended up, uh, you ended up running, so it's a little bit different. So I found it interesting that you were told that you had to drop out before the end. Uh, you got lapped, which is something like that never happens in like North America or anywhere else. I don't think. So maybe you can tell us about that experience because that must have been interesting, not knowing if you'd be able to finish the race or not. Yeah, yeah, it's actually uh, it does happen in some cross country races. So like in in the Scottish National Cross Country, the top runners often usually lap the the back markers in the last lap of of the race in Scotland. But in Ethiopia, there was just it was it was a race that you had to qualify for to run in that national championship. So everyone was really fast, and there was just no way that I should have been there. And that was the deal. Yeah, if I if I got lapped, I had to stop. But it, it yeah, it was just in terms of like understanding the fact that athletics is just so relative. Um, I'd been in, I'd finished seventh in the Scottish National Cross Country the year before. And I went to Ethiopia and I was just like dead last immediately. Um, in and the field. how many people? How many people uh, were in the... Not a huge amount, actually, because maybe 150 in that race, something like that. So it was a relatively small field. But what was interesting about it is that most most of the people in that race were kind of running to to win or they were running to finish very, very high up, which meant that people just, if they realize that they're, gonna, they're not going to achieve what they want to achieve on that day, then they'll often just drop out of a race. There's not really the kind of stigma attached to dropping out. So what happened was as I was running along, eventually catching up with back markers in the race, they would just stop as soon as they, you know, they're overtaken by the... By the white guy that was it I would they would just drop out so I every time I overtook someone I ended up being back in last place basically. it was kind of a sense of failure for them to be overtaken by this token white guy who's well yeah totally totally yeah no hope, so, but um, he's only seventh in the national in the national championships um but this is yeah I actually found a um Malcolm the the manager for Moyo Sports that I was telling you about he found some photos from 2015 today um, so I just posted one on Instagram of me at the back of the cross country. Uh, oh, cool. So um, if people want to visualize what that looked like, I won't give away whether because yeah, the deal was that I had to had to not be lapped if I wanted to finish the race. But I won't give away whether whether I managed to or not. We can um, let people read the book. To Ooh, find you out. have to read the book to find out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was. It's interesting though that um, you know there's a philosophy in, in 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 sort of Western running that don't get into a habit of dropping out. Because, you know, it, it plays with your mind and it's, you know, it's mentally soft if you if you go into the run and you figure, well, I'll drop out if it's not my day. It seems to be a slightly different approach with the, the Ethiopian culture. Yeah, I'm not sure how, um, it probably psychologically, it's not that good a habit to learn to drop out all the time. But the, 
the logic was just that you know if you're not going to because that race was a trial race for the for the world cross country i think or for the african um cross country so it was the top top six or the top eight would be selected so if you were definitely not going to be in that top six or top eight then the the idea was that you're better off saving your energy for the next race or the next training session or, or whatever so um, that was kind of the logic behind it. It seems that the tra- training groups, you know, are not logging miles and and clocking kilometers on their watch like Liz does all the time. <laughs> Liz stops her watch every time she pauses. If like we stop on the street corner, she goes, "Oh, stop, stop my watch." I do, I do that as well. To be fair, yeah, because you can. We end up we end up running the same race and uh, with the same training session, and I end up with half a k more than her because <laughs> if time. I'm walking or standing up, my watch is running. But the, the Ethiopians they don't have so many GPS watches, I guess, but they don't seem to value them as much or even use them. Yeah, they uh, they didn't they definitely didn't use them in this exactly the same way. So I feel like there, there were certain training sessions where people really wanted to know how fast they were running, and they were like. The Friday morning session where we would go to an asphalt road, um, and they and those roads were kind of marked out. Um, the kilometers were marked out anyway on the road with the white post, and people would know roughly what certain top athletes were able to run for 20k on that road, for example. So they would want to know very objectively what they could do, and so then they would wear the GPS watch for that kind of training session. But then there were also there's also a lot of running in the forests and things, which were and that running was supposed to be slower and supposed to be kind of more regenerative and supposed to be a different kind of running which was more about kind of exploring the forest and having a good time and feeling a bit adventurous and that was often that kind of running it was often seen as inappropriate to wear a gps because people didn't mind and what pace they were running and sometimes they would even uh, put the gps on just for fun just to see how slow they could go in the forest so people would run you know 10 minutes kilometers sometimes um even you know guys who could run 206 for a marathon would run um would just run incredibly slowly i mean when i when i was first there in 2015 there were hardly any gps watches at all so maybe one or two people had them and then the they obviously became more kind of sought after and they would come into the country through managers or or whatever so they did become uh, they became more widely used but they were it was less a case of everyone had one and they were meticulously logging everything on it than just it was a tool to use in training so um for a while when when only a couple of people had one people would borrow it to go and do a run to see what sort of shape they were in they were sort of used communally in a way that we wouldn't in the uk so for example so one funny thing was that when the breaking two project was on with nike they gave a gps watch to lisa de Sousa and they were looking at the kilometers that he'd run with it and it was you know some crazy 250 kilometers a week or even more sometimes and highly, my friend in Ethiopia said to me, yeah, but he, he wasn't the one who was wearing it the whole time. You know, he'd have been lending it to people. Um, it wouldn't have always been him. So, yeah, they, they kind of move around between people more than they would in the UK, I think. So then do they, like, do they track their workouts at all? Like, do they just do, like, time-based or something like that? Or, like, how do they kind of, or does the coach just say, go run and come back and at this time? or? How does that uh, work? So it depended on the session really but the sort of general week would be monday we would go to do a long run on kind of a rough road kind of surface so like a gravelly road and normally he'd be quite strict about what sort of pace he wanted people to run because and, and that was mainly for kind of to, to make sure people weren't running too fast basically so he would say start off at four minutes per kilometer and move, get down to sort of 330 320 something like that but don't go crazy and then on Wednesdays, we would do uh, speed training, but that would all usually be like sort of one minute, two minute, three minute reps, stuff like that. But run as fast, as, run as fast and as hard as you want. But it wasn't objectively measured. Usually it was like around a big field um, on the watch. And then, as I said, on Friday mornings, it would be on the road and we'd do like a progression run or a tempo run or something like that. And that would be he'd set the times very strictly on, on that. But then, yeah, the rest of the week would just be running. He'd say, go tomorrow morning, run for an hour and 20 minutes. Easy. And that would be all he'd say. He wouldn't stipulate a pace for the easy runs. And they were really, there was a real big difference between the hard sessions and the easy sessions. And the easy sessions were generally really quite easy. Um, even, you know, I could keep up pretty easily on the on the easier runs, um, not on the hard sessions. So another thing you mentioned about the GPS watch was um, that some of the runners would look at how many calories they lost, but not, you know, we kind of look at it where we're sort of like, oh, well, it means I can eat this much pizza. They were actually 
they would make them stress because they were worried about replacing those calories. Mm-hmm. So did that like did those GPS watches and end up just giving them just as much stress as it gives us, but in a different way? Do you think? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think uh, you know, like the main concern that a lot of the runners had that I knew was with their energy levels and maintaining energy levels at a reasonable in a reasonable place and not, as they put it, burning themselves up by doing too much training and and like and basically just burning out. Um, so people were genuinely worried about that because to if you're running and trying to make a breakthrough as a as a marathon runner in Ethiopia, that's a quite a real risk, I think, to do too much because you're desperately trying to get to the next level in order to to try to make some money, provide for your family or whatever. So they were concerned about energy levels and the watch quantified that in a way that was different to what they were used to, I suppose. So you would get people uh, looking at the kind of calories on the watch and then going to supermarkets to try to to look at the calories on food packets and things in a way that they just wouldn't have done before because they'd have bought food in the market and, and things like that. So uh, but yeah, kind of the opposite way of using the GPS to, to the way that we might in terms of the anxiety around calories. Um, and also sometimes they would use the watch, as I said, to, to go as slowly as possible rather than to go as fast as possible. Quite a different attitude sometimes towards kind of speed and slowness and burning calories and things like that. Yeah, seems that the, um, the teams use terrain as well as part of the training, not just your watch, but what terrain you're going to have to run on. We see in the book references to forest running. And I've looked at it on YouTube, that people looping in and out of trees in lines and going around in circles and just having fun, but uphill often uh, in a forest and probably at altitude. And then there's a thing called, if I pronounce it correctly, Cora Conch, mm-hmm. which sounds like it's sort of a gra- gravel, crushed gravel or something like that, some dirt, yeah. dirt roads. And then it's sort of a graduation to, to asphalt when you're, when you're ready to really go hard and fast and you're, you're matured in your running. It seems almost like they use terrain as, as a training device. Yeah, so that, that's kind of what I was trying to get at when I was talking about condition being something that often people would, they wouldn't say like, you know, how can I get conditioned? How can I get fit? They would say, um, like, where is where is condition? Where, where can I find it? And that would be to do with looking at a distribution of different altitudes and surfaces that were going to add up to making them fitter. So they would go to a place called Akaki, when they wanted to run really fast, because that was at lower altitude, um, sort of 2,200 meters above sea level. And it was seen as being much hotter, so it was easier to run fast. And then they would go up to Entoto, which is 3,000 meters above sea level in the forest, uh, to run slowly, but benefit from that lack of oxygen up at that sort of altitude. And then, yeah, the forest running was to kind of build agility and to to deliberately run a bit slower because you can't run that fast through the trees when you're weaving in and out. Uh, yeah, Korokonch is just this wonderfully onomatopoeic word that basically in Amharic, is, there's a few different words, I think, in Amharic that do this, but Korokonch just describes the noise that your foot makes on the, on the surface when you're running. And they said that that was especially good surface because you slip back with every step. So it makes you stronger. You're kind of constantly fighting against the ground as well as the, the hills and things. Yeah, people were very of the belief that you had to use the different environments to your advantage if you were going to get better. And they also would avoid the roads as much as possible. So we'd train on the road once a week, even with the marathon runners, they would not step on the road to run more than once a week because it was seen as damaging for the muscles, um, killing people's speed, basically. And are they running in modern shoes? Yeah. Yeah. So these guys, the guys with um, in, in Malcolm's group were all, some of them were under contract with either Adidas or Nike. Uh, and the ones that weren't would buy Adidas and Nike shoes from sports shops in in Addis. I'm just going to say a couple of them did manage to run one of the characters in the book, Abera. He did run his first race abroad in a pair of those kind of jelly sandals because that's what he found more comfortable. Um, and he ran something like a 61 minute half marathon in those in Morocco. Yikes. But given the choice, uh, people tended to, to wear racing shoes. The thing that struck me early on um, in the book, and we were talking about it as we were uh, training ourselves, and saying, well, you know, what's remarkable about about the Ethiopians was they seem to have sort of an inherent belief that your 208 marathon or whatever it is that's your holy grail is in fact there. It's it's available to you. It's not can I train myself? It's can I access? It's kind of a different mentality. It, it seems to me. It's sort mm-hmm. of, of course, you can run that. It's just have you prepared yourself? Have you are you able to adapt to the con- to, con- to the conditions? that are required which is an entirely different sort of mindset yeah absolutely so yeah that's what people would say adaptation was the word that people use for training so 
the idea was that anyone could adapt to to running that sort of pace given the right environment and the right conditions so given that they were able to focus 100 percent on their running so being supported to do that without having to do another job at the same time was quite was seen as important but then if you if you had that then it was a question of picking the right people to train with so that you could learn to adapt to their pace basically and then just having enough time and consistent training to be able to do it but there was net there was i never really heard anyone talk about talent apart from people talking sometimes about kenanisa bikaley being like this kind of especially uh, kind of different person i suppose in some ways but in terms of just everyday ideas about talent that we would have people did think that most most of the athletes were able to become a 208 or 206 marathon runner given the right circumstances i i don't think that's probably physiologically the case but psychologically it probably helps to believe that if you think that everyone can do it then then it means that you're more willing to give it a try for sure you get kind of the roger bannister effect <laughs> yeah if, exactly. if suddenly the four minute mile is broken everyone believes it's possible and then people start to achieve yeah we'll have to see whether that happens with the two-hour marathon now but um yeah Yes, we'll find good. out. Yeah, exactly. So you, um, he did also mention that um, so the Ethiopians, there are so, sort of rules that we kind of follow, like the 20 minute window after exercise, like you should have a snack within the 20 minute window, um, taking naps, like a, having a certain number of hours of sleep. And they don't really seem to follow these rules, not obviously, but do you think that they somehow make up for it in other ways? Or maybe do you think that these sort of like rules don't have as much of an impact on our performance as we think they have? Well, yeah, they do. I mean, no one was ever hitting that 20 minute window of eating something after training, especially in the mornings when we would walk up to the forest to go running. That was like sometimes a 30, 40 minute walk. And then we'd often walk back via the shops and go into have a chat with someone or whatever and if we when we drove somewhere in the bus to train it would sometimes take two hours to get back through the traffic so people were just used to training and then being hungry for a couple of hours and then walking home from wherever the bus dropped them off and that was just like part of running really I suppose it was seen as just an extension and and yeah I don't know what to make of that really it was I don't think people thought about it too much but it probably doesn't do any harm in terms of learning how to process energy and learning how to how to be able to run the last sort of half an hour of a marathon when you when you haven't been able to you know take on enough energy and things like that so and then with the sleeping thing people were just much more laid back about it so they would try to sleep a little bit during the day but often we'd just all be in the same room watching tv and someone would just be sleeping in the room with everyone else while people were chatting it wasn't like everyone was obsessively going off on their own to to get their two-hour nap in or anything like that and then people were just often up in the night running as well three o'clock in the morning and so it was less less a case of trying to get make sure you get eight hours of sleep in a particular chunk and more just like the sleep is often more distributed throughout the day but because they're full-time athletes they are sleeping a lot because you know there's not that much else to do i suppose but not worrying about it i don't think too much speak about the uh up at three o'clock in the morning seems to be a sort of training philosophy that you mustn't get too comfortable with yourself we we see we hear a story in the book of you getting woken up by your um training friend i don't know how to pronounce his name is it Hallier? Hallier? Yeah. Hallier? Uh, taking you on a 3 a.m. run followed by a cold shower. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, the logic behind that is like, well, part of it is that the hill that he wanted to run on um, was on the road. So we had to, you kind of, you have to go and do it at night so that you don't get run over. But there was also part of the logic is to do with a lot of the time people were trying to conserve energy, as I said, and trying to train in this quite sensible way. But then there was also the, this belief that you had to occasionally embrace kind of this idea of like dangerousness or adventure in order to make particular leaps in your um in fitness so uh there was getting up at three o'clock in the morning to go and run up and down a hill for an hour was a way of sort of showing your dedication to the sport and uh and doing something a bit extraordinary i suppose in your training uh which was helpful both kind of physically and psychologically i think to people so but it was interesting because it was something that i was living in the compound with with some runners for for six months before i realized that that was happening that people were going out and running in the night and i didn't even know until i kind of got to know people well enough for them to sort of let me in on that as a secret and i was able to get involved in it that's interesting so did they think that you were like you know fit enough after six months that they they thought you know it's time to move on to the next level or it was 
they didn't think to invite you the other time. Uh, maybe they, maybe it was like a level of trust, or that they thought that maybe I'd got used to the the sort of way of doing things enough to, for them to to think that I might want to come. I suppose maybe maybe they just assumed that I wouldn't be interested until then. Not that many people, I guess, who want to get up at three in the morning to run up and down a hill. <laughs> I guess it's sort of uh, it's 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 a mixture of you know challenging your limits and pushing, being prepared to push your limits. And also just having crazy fun. Yeah, yeah. This is exactly. so, so sort of enjoyable. Yeah, people really did enjoy their running, but they were also, most people did say, this is something I'm doing to try and change my life and to try to make something better for myself uh, by making some money and, and things. So they were aware that running could become quite boring. It could become something that was sort of seen as a job in some ways because they would, because it was a job. Um, and so the way of combating that was to make sure that they were introducing things into the training all the time that meant that it would retain this kind of sense of adventurousness and uh, and kind of creativity, I think, more than anything, that they were able to uh, stave off the boredom in that way by, by doing things like running in the night or running up in the forest, in particularly challenging terrain or where the hyenas were and things like that. So it was kind of about keeping things interesting as much as possible, which is just, which is definitely one, one thing that I hope people will take away from the book is to try to try to keep things interesting in, in their running. We never mentioned the hyenas. Liz would love <laughs> to run at night with hyenas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we run in Canada and um, occasionally we've run some night runs where there's the possibility of encountering a bear. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you do. Yeah. Not my favorite time. This, this, this terrifies Liz. <laughs> yeah, it really does. The bears are quite, yeah, that's scary. What people said about the hyenas is that, um, that you know, you don't really need to worry about them too much, but they're just like people, but you do get the odd crazy one. Um, and it only takes <laughs> only takes one crazy one to be a bit of a problem, which is I'm sure is true of the bears as well. It's exactly the same. Yeah, the, because generally they'll tell you that the bear won't, uh, won't bother you. It's only if you surprise the bear. So like the technique is that you're supposed to make a lot of noise. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. So you're running along shouting in the night. <laughs> yeah, you can you can shout or you can like play music from your iPhone or whatever. And yeah, I mean, I guess usually. Tell Michael what we did on the trail. We sang Roxanne yeah, by the sang... police. <laughs> Roxanne. Over and over and over. <laughs> yeah, I guess hyenas are smaller than bears. So like maybe it would, but they tend to be in, they tend to be in packs. So I don't know. I don't know which one I'd like better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd probably take the hyena. I guess, um, you know, uh, doing running as a job and the possible amounts of money that they could earn at the very pinnacle uh, of performance, what we, what we would probably consider to be very modest sums, they could consider to be life-changing amounts of money. D- does that create problems for the, for the people training in Ethiopia or is it just, it's just their holy grail and that's it? Does it create stress or? Um, it does. I mean, it, it is kind of like a, it's a huge lottery, I suppose, trying, being an athlete because it is only a tiny, tiny fraction of the of the people who are trying to make it who who make the kind of really life changing money. Um, and if you watch the finish of Dubai Marathon or something, you've got the winner winning two hundred thousand dollars, and then sometimes it's ten seconds behind them to somebody winning nothing. And then in terms of how good they are as a runner, they're very, very close to being the same, but the money is just vastly different. So that did create problems. And that's something that I'm trying to work through with the with some of my more academic writing at the moment is like the fact that success is definitely seen as being collectively produced in Ethiopia by the group and by people people's relationships with their friends and families and things like that. But then when people do make that kind of really stratospheric kind of money in Ethiopia, you know, if they're winning half a million dollars in a year, they w- would often sort of move away from the area where they'd previously lived. And they, the relationships with the people that they've been training with before that would often break down as a result of that huge influx of money. So, it, yeah, it could create problems. And it was, yeah, it's difficult when you when you dedicate years and years of your life to something and then it doesn't work out. So for the people who had to just move back home to the to the village and go back to farming, who, if they've been chasing this dream of, of making huge amounts of money, it was it did really separate people out between you know the very few that made loads of money and the and the vast majority that didn't. There's a time when you went to um, uh, several several times you visited Bakoji Village, which is quite famous yeah. for having produced um, it's a it's a, I think seventeen thousand people in in the village, and it's produced yeah. like six Olympic medals or something uh, out of there. Um, yeah, and. Um, they do remark that they don't see some of the superstars, you know, they don't see them coming back and 
necessarily um, paying homage to their old village. Yeah. So yeah, Coach Santayu, who was the he's the main coach in Bakoji, who's coached all of the, the champions from, from there. I think it's something like 30, 30 something world championship medals that they've got from just that one town. Some of the runners go back, but a lot of them just don't don't go back to those to those areas. But Tiranesh Dibaba and um and Kennedy Bikali, I think, um chipped in together to buy him a house, build him a house there. So he has been looked after to a certain extent, but I think they do feel like there could be more investment from the the top athletes back to plow money back into the sport but there does seem to be this idea that once you've made it that's kind of a sign that you've sort of been chosen to to be successful and therefore it's, there's less of an obligation to share the money um once you've once you've won Kenanisa is definitely viewed as um something revered Kenanisa Bekele in terms of um his ability and his success his coach seemed to see him as some someone special. Apart from the fact that he he's a quick runner, uh, he's the only one that seems to in the on the world stage stands next to uh, Eliud Kipchoge. What was it? How how did they describe him? What's what? Did, how did they talk about Kenanisa Bekele? He was he was kind of viewed as the the one person on the male side of the sport. At least he was seen as different. <laughs> what I've said previously is, you know, about the being this lack of belief in talent really didn't apply to Kenanisa in the sense that he was seen as being especially special <laughs> something about him that meant that if he decided to win a race that was just it that was going to happen um and, and when he was in shape and people were really kind of lamenting the fact that he's been unable to string the long periods of training together over the last decade even really to be up there with Kipchoge but people really think that he's the most talented runner well I, I think he's probably the most talented runner of all time but but yeah since how you said he said that he, he also just like he said he'd met quite a lot of athletes who would say you know I'm gonna what if he asked them when they were 13 what their ambition was they would say oh, I want to win the world championships or something but he said when when he asked Kenanisa Kenanisa said it in a way that was like he just knew that that was going to happen and he was just incredibly sort of focused and driven but yeah I think there's something there is something special about him um in terms of just his, his ability and people did revere it you mentioned also at one point that it's not just so they have these teams that they can make and they can be part of a team but that's not how they get to the international races they have to have like a like an agent yeah and then this the these agents like some of them are they're not honest. So you told a story where a runner, like sometimes runners will go and they'll win prize money and they won't even see the prize money because the agent will just take off with it. Mm-hmm. So is that sort of part of the problem as well? Because, you know, it seems like almost like you need an agent and then people like the runners really want to run, compete internationally. So they'll try very hard to find an agent. It doesn't seem like it's regulated in any way. So they, they're they happy to get any agent. And then, you know, what if like their partner that they train with ends up winning money and they get the money and then the other person ends up winning money and they don't get the money because the agent takes off with it. It is regulated. So you're supposed to, as an athlete manager, you're supposed to do an exam um, and be accredited by World Athletics and be accredited by whichever governing body within a country you want to whose athletes you want to work for so you should have accreditation from world athletics and from the ethiopian athletics federation if you're working in ethiopia or from kenyan athletics if you're working in kenya for example so and most of the top managers who are sending people to like berlin marathon or london marathon have that accreditation and they're they're kind of the top level of of management but what you had in ethiopia was also people who realized that there was this business opportunity of sending people unofficially to races um smaller races normally in like china or india or thailand and places like that and those relationships could be very exploitative so they would you know sometimes fly some someone to a race in china but then they would end up staying for five weeks and running three different marathons for like not particularly good prize money and then find that there's just after the hotel bills and all that kind of stuff there's no money left at the end of that process or they'd fly back and then never be, never see the agent again and the, the money would disappear so that is that's a big problem and it's it's still a problem it's something that i'm trying to sort of do more research about and write about a bit more at the moment um uh yeah it's often an educational problem as well the athletes young athletes don't know what to look for in an agent they don't know which kind of what kind of questions to ask to make sure that someone's reputable and that they're not going to be exploited so that's something that i'm trying to to do at the moment is to kind of work with ethiopian athletics to provide more information for young athletes well these agents they're not with they're not like with the team they're they're sort of their agents and they work for ethiopian athletics 
so the, those agents don't work for so the, the people who are sending athletes to sort of small races in china and things sometimes they're not affiliated to anything at all they're not they're not affiliated mm-hmm. to Ethiopian athletics they're not necessarily particularly connected to the clubs either they just would approach a young athlete and say look are you interested in going to this race in china and then they just organize it people like uh, malcolm and uh Elliot kipchoge's management agency or, or something like that that's a completely different situation they're very professional just sign a contract with athletes that it's very clear and then the deal is basically that pretty much across the board agents take 15% of all earnings from athletes that's that's how it works in in exchange for organizing their races and planning the racing schedule and all that kind of thing we hear a lot about um the running clubs and um your influence and your well, not your influence how how you perceive the guys who are running unfortunately they all seem to be male mm. there's a segregation i assume there's a segregation was it inappropriate for you to mix with the ladies and and get feedback from the women runners or it was more just that um especially at the beginning of my field work when i didn't know people particularly well because of the kind of background of most of the runners being quite traditional sort of rural upbringings most of the female runners were very very shy around me didn't really want to talk to me it wouldn't have been appropriate for me necessarily to interview them a lot you know one to one especially so i just made a decision fairly early on that i was going to write a phd thesis and therefore the book about male running the the group was there were you know roughly 15 to 20 men in the group and about 15 to 20 women as well just i i ended up most of my the friends that i made and the kind of stronger relationships that i have with with the male athletes so that's okay so that's the women were there about. the women were there yeah, yeah. just that there. Uh, you were writing and, and and operating in amongst the male group yeah so i in hindsight actually in in terms of the training and things it would have been far better for me to train with the women's group <laughs> that that would have been more my level i probably would have been better for me as an athlete i think and that really came home to me in running frankfurt marathon i ran with the elite women basically the whole whole marathon it was brilliant running in that group with them but yeah it just it was a decision i made just because of um not wanting to make people feel um uncomfortable asking them loads and loads of questions <laughs> as an anthropologist i guess so did you use your um your your new fitness when you got back to the, like that marathon that you did in frankfurt was that uh sort of shortly after you came back to the uk or it was a while after i got back but i used um i kind of trained for it through uh, sort of partially through being coached by my old coach back in uh in durham actually and then partially through adapting some of the stuff that i was doing in ethiopia immediately after i got back from ethiopia actually i wasn't running that well myself just because i think as i said before um in trying to keep up with people so much in order to write the book and in order to write the phd thesis i was kind of overtraining the whole time at, at altitude as well and just not really allowing myself to recover as well as i should have been so a lot of the time when the athletes were kind of resting and sleeping between training sessions i was that's when i was like typing notes and and writing and stuff so uh and going to amharic lessons and, and things like that so i was just a bit i think i was over overtrained and a bit tired most of the time when i when i got back uh but i definitely like yeah i've incorporated stuff since that i learned i think and um i think you had a goal of going sub 220 so did that ever happen uh not yet i i was hoping that i might run a marathon in 2020 to have a have a go at that but it's uh it's not happened unfortunately as, as a result of all the stuff um i i ran i think i was in shape to do it in london marathon in uh 2019 but i got tonsillitis about a week before the race um oh, dropped no. out at 15 miles it's a i don't know it's tantalizingly close i've run 22053 so i feel like you know it's a second per kilometer just over a second per kilometer so i would like to give it one last crack but we'll see see what the pandemic throws at us over the next year or so so it's definitely there in front of you you just have to adapt correct <laughs> yeah exactly as the <laughs> ethiopians would say I hope, I hope the rest of the world adapts to allow it to happen as well. Some, something that we've seen, and it's not in your book, but something that we've seen um, with poorer countries is um, there's, uh, because of the money involved, there's a big temptation in terms of drug-assisted performances. You, you don't touch on this at all in your book, but is the specter of um, doping, you know, we've seen problems in Kenya. Is, is it similar in Ethiopia? I think, yeah, it's definitely a, it definitely happens i i didn't see it you know firsthand no one talked about it sort of directly to me particularly which is why i didn't really write about it in the book but yeah there was the guardian 
uh, sort of investigative piece about Addis where they went into the pharmacy opposite the stadium and were sold EPO over the counter and things like that. So it is, it's available. My feeling is that it's much too expensive for the vast majority of athletes to engage in doping. So if it, if it is happening, it's only at the very top level with a small um, proportion of people. Sometimes people talked about it, but there was a sense that that people were never quite sure what what was a vitamin and what was prohibited and it was sort of there wasn't that much information for people to go on about performance enhancing drugs which made me feel like it probably wasn't something that was happening all the time but then as you suggest the increasing pressure the you know the increased competition and the sort of temptation to do it in order to to sort of benefit economically is definitely there so it could well have been happening it's hard to tell well one of the interesting things was that the people talked more about um witchcraft and about the dangers of, of people doing that than they did about doping and when they did talk about doping they talked about it in a similar way to to forms of witchcraft which were seen as similarly kind of illicit ways of benefiting and cheating Steal, other people stealing energy from people was one of the energy or or they say you know that's a way of taking a shortcut so it's like that which is yeah cheating and and not doing something in a way that's fair and as a result of kind of hard work basically you seem to have a strong belief that um you need to live a good life in order to achieve the the objectives so there's something sort of rather wholesome about that yeah so that's connected to like an amhara or ethiopian idea about um about chance or what they call idyll which basically is this belief that when all is said and done it'll really be god that decides what happens to you and how how your life unfolds and it'll be god who decides who wins and who loses so basically the kinds of behavior that were seen as being rewarded by god were kind of patience consistency humility and things like that which which just happen to be the kinds of characteristics that make a good runner a lot of the time so that was so being a good orthodox christian in ethiopia lent itself to being a good athlete because it was their kind of disposition that they would adopt um, was was useful for for taking that kind of long term approach to their to their running and and living this kind of quite secluded, quite sort of virtuous sort of lifestyle. Yeah. Oh, along the same lines, um, based on your experience in Ethiopia, do you have any uh, training tips for all of us? <laughs> yeah, I think um, just try to try to find ways of keeping running as interesting as possible. I think is the main one. As much variety as possible maybe adopting some of the kind of zigzag running techniques and things like that that I describe in the book finding particular environments that are, that are a bit more challenging and kind of deliberately seeking out unusual places rather than just sticking to the same routines all the time I think that would be the main the main one what that tells you Liz is that you need to get off the streets and into the trails oh, yeah exactly, no. exactly and if there are hyenas then you should bring your friend <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, this is, I think the, the getting on the trails thing is definitely, we, we kind of have this separation between road running and trail running, I think, a lot of the time. And actually, you look at how the best road runners in the world train, it's 90% of it is off road and only a small proportion of it is on the road. So that's kind of an interesting thing, I think. Do you think if um, money comes into trail, the trail running sport, which increasingly ultra trails um, are becoming trendy and uh, having money flowing in from all sorts of places, mostly corporations, do you think Ethiopians could make good trail runners? Yeah, well, they definitely could. They definitely could. It would be a case of like of motivating them to do it, though. That's the thing, because mm. uh, at the moment, I I mentioned it to a few people because I actually ran the um, World 50K Championships while I was in Ethiopia. I went and ran that in Doha, and I, when I mentioned when I when people asked me what I was training for, and I said that, they said, "No, no, no. There's nothing. It's 42K is the furthest race." <laughs> so, and then because with the history of running in Ethiopia and and the way that it kind of took off as a as a culture being so connected to Abibi Bikula winning the Olympic marathon in Rome, the marathon is kind of still the big, that's the big deal in Ethiopia is the marathon. So there's not that much interest in the, in the stuff beyond the marathon. Although, yeah, if, it, definitely if the prize money was was there, people would train for, for that stuff, I think. At the moment, I don't think there are any managers working with Ethiopian runners to send them to those kinds of races. It might be interesting to, to, to do it, so, you know, for someone to do it. We were chatting with uh, a Darinand Finn about yeah, yeah. Uh, rise of the ultra runners um, yeah. a few months ago and uh, he told us about his attempts to get Kenyans to come and run some ultras which were abysmal failures basically yeah but i don't understand few runners have come across to to run races with a had run but he uh i think if you're going to do it you've got to get it you've got to get one of the you've got to get a good marathon runner mm. and then 
train them for trail running not you, you might as well go with a good athlete rather than just bringing someone random i suppose uh, but i think yeah we we'll see what happens you got there's been quite a few ugandans run really well in um in mountain running championships so that's it's definitely starting to take off do you think you'll um go back to ethiopia and train there been back quite a few times since um since the period of time that's covered in the book but then yeah not for the last not for the last year obviously with the pandemic i was there in february but yeah, I'd love to go back if and and if um if there's interest from people who've read the book in going over, then it might be a case of you know trying to organise like a training trip for people or something like that at some point in the future. Um, but I'll definitely I'll be going backwards and forwards for research purposes anyway over the next few years. Hopefully, I like to try and get back once or twice a year if I can because it's apart from anything else, it's just a fantastic place and got a lot of friends there and things. Fantastic. Um, did you feel uh, unsafe at any stage while you were over there? Because, you know, um, there's stories, Eritrea and conflict. Um, I'm not sure of the politics, but, you know, we hear stories. Was there any evidence of that? Did you feel unsafe? Uh, I never personally felt unsafe, not in the way not in the way that I would feel sort of walking around Nairobi at night, for example. You can, in the part of Addis where I lived, I could walk from, in the pitch black from a cafe up to where I lived on my iPhone and not worry that someone was going to mug me, at, you know, even at night. So I felt like it was it was very safe. Politically, I mean, there was a crackdown when I was in Ethiopia um, on political dissidents, and that involved them basically switching the internet off for several weeks, which is pretty inconvenient in terms of talking to Roslyn, my partner and things like that. But I never felt personally unsafe. I don't know what the situation, I've not been back obviously this year and most of the the conflict is obviously up towards Tigray region at the moment. I imagine it's a lot more tense at the moment, but hopefully, yeah, just have to hope that things settle down relatively soon. I mean, this book is only coming out in January, right? In, yeah, it comes out on the 12th, I think. Okay, and is there? Do you have any anything else in the pipeline? Any other projects? Uh, another book that you're working on, or uh, not another book yet? Um, I actually do want to do a project on uh, ideas around anti-doping next. Um, sort of more broadly, not just in Ethiopia, but uh, looking at kind of doping in cross-cultural perspective so rather than just assuming that everyone has the same attitude towards doping try to look at different countries and, and how people think about kind of doping but also just sporting morality more generally so that's kind of the next academic project and whether that makes its way into a book for a popular audience as well i'm not sure but we'll see one of the people we spoke to uh, recently in our series was matt hart um who oh, wrote yeah, the yeah. book uh, win at all costs yeah and he'd spent three years well, you've got you've got a copy behind you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well done, Matt. Will be very happy. <laughs> yeah. And he spent three years basically researching uh, a lot of stuff that isn't in his book. Background around doping and uh, doping culture. Yeah, it's a really interesting, fascinating book. I really enjoyed reading that. But yeah, it's, I just think it's yeah, it's really interesting, and especially looking at it from kind of perspective of Ethiopia and Kenya. Um, reading something like Matt's book. It really makes you makes it clear how this is like an an equality issue as well. I think in terms of you know we think about sporting fairness just in terms of which chemicals are entering somebody's body. I think that's quite a limited way of thinking about what fairness looks like um, in terms of kind of access to opportunities and access to that kind of information. Because this is you know in, in Nike running in the states that's very much dependent upon this huge amount of money and technology and kind of expertise that goes into allowing people to tread that very fine line between what's legal and what's not and that's uh, not available to people in Ethiopia and Kenya obviously that that kind of approach so yeah getting access to something that's borderline but legal mm. much earlier than somebody else could so the, the issues of kind of morality and fairness I think are really interesting just before we wrap up on on the just we'll give our summary thoughts on the book what was the, one of the, some of the most interesting or fun things that you experienced while you were in it, the remarkable things? Uh, to do with running or more generally? Either. Uh, Running-wise, I mean, just general uh, getting up at 4.30 in the morning in the dark, getting on a bus, and then the sun sort of rising as we arrived in somewhere like Sandafa. And then just like the running is just so stunning. It's just it's just amazing. So like those rolling roads that I described, you kind of you're just descending sort of 200 meters and then ascending at 200 meters, and it's just farmland as far as you can see on either side. It's just a stunningly beautiful place and always amazing. It's always sunny. It's always basically 22 degrees all the time in Ethiopia. So it's just like 
wonderful from that point of view. What were some of the interesting things? I learned how to um, how to kill a sheep and butcher a sheep um, as part of uh, part of sort of celebrating someone's wedding. That was quite an interesting, unusual thing. Uh, so, in terms of in terms of uh, the the gorgeous running, uh, if you do organise tours, we we need to stay <laughs> tuned to to get on yeah. to get in on that if we can afford it and the travel opens up again. Um, how are people going to find you, Michael? Do you have a website? Uh, not yet, actually. No, just um, just on Twitter at MPH Crawley. Okay, so everybody should link to you so they can find out when you organise the tour. And mm-hmm. it depends on um, things settling down. Okay, let's do a let's do let's do a little summary. I'll just ask uh, Liz for our thoughts on the book. So obviously, I thought the story was fascinating, and it re- reinforced how important our belief systems are to our performance. It made me want to see if I could follow the feet of the runner in front of me during workouts. So uh, that would be mostly Alan's feet in this case, because we don't really have group workouts. And even if we did, he's the he's, his feet are the closest. So um, I, I found it refreshing and informative to see a different perspective on training and, and the benefit of not training alone. I think um, it, it's so different to sort of like how we are here in North America and how, you know, most runners sort of, they, they tend to want to mostly run alone until they're good enough to run with a team and they sort of don't see themselves as good enough to run with a team. And it seemed like the culture is completely different in Ethiopia. It's sort of like, well, no, you come and you run with a team or with people in order to become a better runner and to, to change as, as a runner and as a person. So I, I really like that, uh, that sort of aspect of the story. Uh, the story was well written and um, you get to feel like you, you, like you know the people yourself, like you got to know them. And uh, the the book did a good job of telling us both the story of why Ethiopian runners are so dominant and the difficulties they face trying to get into a team where they can earn a living wage. I like that it was not just a romanticized version of runners from a poor background without shoes that ended up being stars, which is a little bit sort of those stories we we usually hear. I would uh, recommend it to anyone curious about what makes the East Africans the best runners in the world. Also to anybody that wants a few tips for their own running. Uh, for my part, I think uh, the book puts you into the country of Ethiopia, so you feel that you're walking in your shoes, Michael, uh, in terms of the experience. And it shows you also how running fits in a special way into the culture of Ethiopia. So your skill as an anthropologist uh, shows through in the storytelling. The book also puts you into the character and behavior of some of the runners, you know, which is also a reflection of what they believe in and what their culture is. We touched on that during our discussions a little bit. Um, something we didn't mention, but the color photographs are great. Um, our, the version that we were provided had um, all the color photographs with it, and it gives you an actual visual insight. And that prompted me to then go on YouTube and look for Koji Village and see what it was really like. You should, if you've not seen it, you should, there's a great film, Town of Runners set in Pukoji. Really, really good documentary. Great. Thanks for the advice. It's excellent. We'll be, we'll be looking that one up before the holidays are over. Yeah, it, it was a shame there wasn't more info for me on, on female runners, but you know, you've explained why that is, how it is. Um, and of course, that leaves you an opportunity for next time, maybe. Well, actually, I was going to say, um, there's an anthropologist, Hannah Borenstein, who's writing a PhD um, at the moment at Duke University on female running in Ethiopia. So she will hopefully have a book out at some point. I'm not sure um, when, but she's uh, she's great. So there will be a book about it. It just won't be by me. Sounds great. I'd read that. The thing I love particularly because it touches my my own character is the, the, the sort of craziness of the team environment, the camaraderie, doing crazy stuff and, you know, recognizing each other because of being dangerous or daring to do something or taking the lead uh, and running hard. Um, Liz is smiling because we had just finished the book and we had a hill session last last week and um, we were supposed to do 10 sprints controlled up the hills and we were with a couple of people who run much faster run faster than than I do and what I did on the first sprint so I just went absolutely flat out <laughs> and got to the hill got to the first hill first but I was completely exhausted so then I took the second hill and I just went flat out again and I got to the hill, top of the hill first again. But of course, then I was smashed and I got absolutely crushed on the, uh, <laughs> on the following hills. 
but it then became a story and we're all laughing about it and seeing how stupid we were. And so you lose some training benefit, but you get some sort of team benefit. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think that's definitely. clear. That's what the Ethiopians do a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially in the speed training and stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, you give us that insight. We, you know, we, we, can, we can see our own experiences in, in some of those things. So it's a fantastic read from that point of view. So uh, if you haven't got your pre-order in, get your copy. Our discussions don't do the book justice in any way. And of course, you need to find out whether how, how Michael gets on in his race. Well, thank you both for the close reading of the of the book. I really appreciate that. You um, do you also have a a place where you would uh, like people to to get the book? That's a really good question. I don't know. Um, uh, I think it's definitely available from Amazon, and if it, I'd buy it from an independent books bookshop if it's available, but I'm not sure exactly where it will be. That's fair. That's fair. I know it's on Amazon because I went to check, and it's available for pre-orders. Mm. Yeah, And thank you, because uh, you're currently in the UK, um, and we're conducting this in the evening on the east coast of North America. Thank you for staying up late to speak with us. <laughs> you're welcome. I hope I didn't sound tired. Not at all. So thank you for listening to another episode of Running Book Reviews. A big thank you to the publisher, Bloomsbury, for providing a review copy and also putting us in touch with Michael. And a big thanks to Michael Crawley again for spending time with us today and for being up so late. If you'd like to leave us feedback about how we can improve the podcast or want to suggest a book that you'd like us to read in the future, uh, you can leave us a comment on social media. We're running book reviews on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter. We are reviews underscore running. Uh, You can um, follow us on social media. You'll see when the new episodes are released or you can just subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast streaming platform. And that's all from Running Book Reviews. 